you're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. We encourage you to use this podcast only as a supplement to your regular attendance or membership of a local church that faithfully preaches the gospel. If you're in Birmingham, we would love for you to visit Iron City. See more details at our website, ironcitychurch.org. Tonight, I want to start off with a question. When was the last time you despaired? Maybe this is the first time you've been to church in a while and it's not always this heavy, but I think that is an important place for us to start sometimes. When was the last time you despaired? When was the last time you were at the end of yourself? Where you felt overwhelmed, attacked, confused, like people were against you, like evil was closing in. When was the last time you were tired, despondent, crushed? Maybe you're here today and you say, today I felt that way, Dustin. Or this past week. It's been a few months, but I know many of you deeply and I know that life is hard and heavy. And the beauty of the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to act like it's not overwhelming at times. But that God gives us an invitation to rest in him when it is overwhelming. So many of the Psalms sound like what we're hearing tonight. So my question is, what do you do? Not do you at times, but when you're despairing, when you're overwhelmed, When you feel like things are closing in, what do you do? How do you respond? The Psalms are so helpful because they teach us how to pray and interact with God. There's all these different genres that make up the Bible and it's so beautiful how they work together. But a lot of them tell us history and some of them tell us rules and some of them tell us the narrative of Jesus. But the Psalms are really unique in that we get to hear the prayers of God's people how they ask for things, how they cry out for things, how they deal with the challenges and the difficulty and the joys of life. Over to the back, there's a couple of new rhythms that I picked up, but one of the things that I really uh, grateful I was able to grow in was the idea of praying scripture. This is something I heard for a long time and I thought I was doing, I think I was doing, but I used to think praying scripture meant like, well, I'll open my Bible and I'll just kind of slowly read a psalm and think about a little bit and say amen. And that's a good and valuable thing. But what I began to kind of really practice over sabbatical was taking time to really put myself into the text. Sometimes we can be deceived and think that because this was written thousands of years ago, that it's too distant for it to really have any bearing on our lives today. But God's word is timeless. And so sometimes we have to take some extra work to put ourselves here. But what I want us to do as we jump into Psalm 17 is to set ourselves into this narrative. Recognize the truths that are revealed about who God is and about who we are. Ask the question, what is God inviting me to in this? What is God challenging me with? What questions is he asking me? And then to pray through those things. Our prayer tonight is not that you hear a lot of new theology. That's good, but it probably will be familiar. But it's to challenge you to consider anew 
how to relate to these promises of God. When I first read Psalm 17, I, I, mean, I just imagined a guy, David, in a cave with his little band of soldiers, with all these other soldiers around him, and he's in this battle, and that kind of stuff feels so distant at times for me. I've never wielded a real sword in my life. That might be a surprise to many of you. I don't have, I'm glad I got some, I don't have any armor. It's easy for me to just feel far off, but as I read it more and more, what I realized that this is exactly who I am sometimes. A guy at the end of his rope, overwhelmed, fearful, saying, I've tried to do it all as you've asked, Lord. Please help me. So with this lens, follow along with me as I read Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From the presence that let from your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regards to the work of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violence. My steps have held fast your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity and with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps and they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to the infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. God hears our righteous prayers for justice and he invites us to rest in his care and in his protection as we await his judgment and his redemption. God hears our prayers. God provides us with rest. And God is making all things new. I could summarize the psalm in that. It's, it's that. He hears us. He grants us rest. And he's taking care of it. So we jump into the first two verses and what we see here is that, God, that David is crying out to God. Attend to my cry, hear us, hear me. It feels strange that we have to ask God to listen to us. 
at times, doesn't it? But David's point is that God will listen. He's in some ways stating and reminding himself of what he knows. God will hear hear me. God will hear me. Because what he's asking for is good and just. He's crying out. He's desperate. Again, if you're desperate in this room tonight, if you know someone who's desperate, this is good news because this is David, the greatest king of Israel. Saw God do incredible things, and yet he knows what it's like to beg for God to help him. There's four exclamation marks at the end of all four lines of these first two voices. He's crying out desperately to God. And that's our invitation. God can handle our feelings. And that's good news. We can cry out to him. We can shout to him. We can beg from him. We don't have to kind of get our feelings all neat and tidy or kind of, you know, make things appropriate and then kind of come with a formal addressing to God. But we can cry out and yell. And he hears us. We see that David is trusting both in God's character and the quality and the justness of his request. God hears our prayers, especially when they are for what is good and pleasing and delightful to God. When we ask for help, when we ask for mercy, when we ask for justice, when we ask for deliverance, when we ask for holiness, those are things God delights in and we can trust that God will answer them. But in this situation, David, we're about to hear, is suffering great injustice. He feels circled and surrounded, hopeless and despairing. And what he cries out is not, all right, Lord, I have been doing what's right, and now I'm going to go take care of things. But he asks that God will be the one who vindicates him. So we see at the beginning the tension here of David calling for God to act instead of just acting on his own. He's asking for God to be the one who vindicates him, who saves him, who restores things. Do you feel like you have to take care of yourself? When things are going wrong, do you feel like you need to get yours out of this world? To figure it out on your own? To look out for number one? That ideology is so pervasive in our culture. But we see that David's pushing back against that. And he's saying, I'm going to trust in God for this. So verses three and four, it gets even more uncomfortable. It says the next few lines, he talks about how righteous he is. He says he hasn't done anything wrong. He says, God, listen to me because I have done all that you've asked. My life's blameless before you. How did you feel when I read that the first time? Because honestly, when I read this the first time, I was like, man, uh, that feels, feels weird. It feels off. We're like bad sinners, right? And we laugh, but I, I think that is a, a difficult tension. So the first thing I want us to recognize is how do we see ourselves? And do we see ourselves like God sees us? The, the Christian faith is one full of tension. 
full of dynamics. In Christ, we are both saints and sinners. And when we focus totally on one to the discredit of the other, we miss out. We know that David was not blameless. We know that David cried out in other Psalms about his sinfulness. But there's a way that David can say, hey, God has given me his word. He's shown me what to do and how to live. And I have obeyed it. And we can know that God's at work in that. But there's, there's something true and safe about David saying that to God. Do we believe that by the grace of God, through his spirit and his word, that God can actually do good in us, through us? Do we see ourselves as saints and sinners or do we just see ourselves as sinners? Are we always on the lookout for all that we've done wrong and never for what God is doing in us? Do we believe that God can do good in us? They can bring about righteousness and right living in our lives. That there can be days where we are more grateful to the Lord that he has brought about good things in our lives than we have to be consumed with repentance over the sin in our lives. Because there's a tension here. The Lord's prayer that I think is helpful for us to pray almost daily calls us to confess our sins. There's no illusion that we can attain some kind of sinlessness in this life. I think it's also good for us to recognize that God does not solely or even primarily see us as wretched or full of sin or just these worms. Like, I think sometimes I can believe. So maybe you're here tonight and you really need a, another heaping of God's conviction, but maybe you're here tonight and you need to be reminded that God delights in you. Then you can honestly say, Lord, I think I'm trying hard. I've seen you work in this area of my life. What am I missing here? Have I been faithful? I think I have. But the other question we should ask is, what role does sin play in our prayers? Why is David calling upon his actions? Because the scriptures say things like, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. This is very powerful, is a, a more normal way of saying that. And I think what is true is that sin that is unrepentant puts a barrier between us and God. There's a reason why God's calling about the righteousness. He's saying, hey, God, I'm, I don't deserve this. This is not just punishment for my evil actions. I've been doing what's right. Please hear my prayer. Unrepentant sin does put a barrier between us and God, not an eternal one, but a relational one. And so we should be quick to repent, to, to examine our lives as we go to the Lord in prayer and say, hey, what do I need to bring before him? But there is good news that David only knew a shadow of here. And that's what I want us to hear most about these few verses. So David said, hey, look at me, God. In this situation, I'm righteous, so hear my prayer. But scripture says some incredible, marvelous things. Like we are hidden in Christ when we trust in him. That we are clothed in his righteousness. And so when we pray, 
We can pray boldly and with confidence, not because of our righteousness, but because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Amen? Amen? That's good, right? We don't have to have it all together anymore to come boldly before the throne. We can know that our lives are covered in the muck and mire of sin or brokenness or addiction or whatever is plaguing you. And all God is listening for is just a whisper of please help. And he looks and sees one of his son's beloved. So we can pray boldly. We don't have to have it all together. The last thing I want us to see from these verses is that your faith, your faith will be tested. Your righteousness will be tested. Your pursuit of God will be tested. And what that does is it strengthens and builds up your faith and it distinguishes the way of Jesus from the way of this world. As David was facing persecution, he had the option to either move towards God more or towards the world more. So we probably shouldn't enjoy being tested, but we can know that God's working in it. And if you find yourself in unbelievably difficult circumstances and you don't see a purpose, trust that God is going to bring good out of this darkness. Not that he's glad for it or that he rejoices in it, but that he is able to use it. So David talks about his righteousness and then he moves to the second thought. So he's, he's saying, hey, Lord, please hear me. I've done all that I know to do right. Please vindicate me. And these shifts and he talks about the character of God. So in verse six, we see he calls upon the Lord again. He says, I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear, hear my words. I mean, like five verses earlier, he said the same thing. And I think we see here that the human nature of David, of the people of the Bible. This is not some super holy guy that had all together and then we're just kind of trying to make it. But David's desperate. He's desperate for God to hear him. So he's calling out to him again. We're called to be persistent in our prayer. When my son, who's two and a half, wants a treat, sometimes, if I'm being honest, he wears me down. He's like, please, Dad. I'm like, no, you don't need any gummies. We're about to eat dinner. And he's like, please, please, Dad. And I'm like, no, no. And then he just kind of begs. And it's hard, right? It's hard if you're a parent in the room. It's hard for me. I'm like, oh, man. Uh. But God loves us infinitely more. And when we're asking for his will, we're asking for something so much better than gummies. But that's the picture here, that God is a good father and we can cry out and beg and plead for him. And the mystery of this text is that when you're, when you're thinking, again, God, do I have to pray this prayer again? I'm so tired of praying this prayer. I'm so tired of not hearing that we can trust in the mystery of the one who is making all things right. And David, it's so beautiful. I feel like you can, you can hear David encouraging himself as he prays. He's saying, you will, I believe it. You will hear my cry. You will answer me. And then he talks about God's character. 
He's reminding God of who he is. He says, wondrously show your steadfast love to me. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at the right hand. As, we talk, as I prayed in the pastoral prayer, we serve a God who is infinitely powerful and infinitely good. God growingly throughout the narrative of scripture reveals himself to us. He tells us more and more about who he is and what he's like. He fulfills that perfectly and ultimately in Jesus. But in the earliest days, he was just God. He spoke to the people. But as he called out Israel, he made himself known to them with a name. And the name is Yahweh. But the meaning of that name is that he is the Lord's steadfast and loving kindness. The way that God chose to define himself to his people is that he is the God of loving kindness that knows no bounds, that knows no ends, that's steadfast when we are not. So when we're desperate for rest, when we are at the end of ourselves, we need to remember his character. And then David, who has it together in some ways, he's done what's right. He's pursuing God. He doesn't try to seek his own refuge, but he seeks refuge in God. So before we talk about what that looks like, that's kind of the big thrust of tonight. I want to ask you, when you're under attack, when life is hard, when you feel overwhelmed, where do you run? Where do you seek refuge when it's not the Lord? Right, This is a tension for me. I believe it's a tension for you. Do you seek your gifts? Do you seek refuge in your actions, your goodness, your decency, your right living? Well, if I just do all the right things, then I'll be okay. Do you find refuge in your friends or in your society, your family? Do you find refuge in your family? Got my little nuclear family. I'm just going to keep us safe and all the rest of the world will... Well, just work itself out. What about your job? Do something meaningful. Find some purpose in that. And a lot of these things are good, but they're not going to provide rest for us. Refuge for us. What about your wealth? Your financial stability? Your education? What about finding refuge in detaching yourself? Just numbing out, scrolling on your phone, watching more Netflix than you know what to do with, consuming yourself in good food or not so good drink or whatever your vice is that consumes you in the moment. Do you find refuge in your sexual brokenness or your addiction? Do you find refuge in your anger or your bitterness or your isolation? I can stand here and I think list things for hours, but we do it, right? We feel ourselves attacked and we want to create a little cocoon for ourselves. And sometimes those cocoons look nicer or not as nice. They look darker or kind of pretty, but they're not the rest of the Lord, And what keeps you from turning to God and rest? 
I think this is an exercise in faith. What David is doing over and over again, he's saying, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe God's character. I'm going to trust that he is loving and good. He's proven himself faithful in the past, and I'm going to remember that. That's why in a minute we're going to talk about how important community is in this. How important God's word is in remembering his promises. Because only God can provide real rest. The picture here is profound. Kings during this time would have the, the right hand was where power and authority was. If you were in the king's favor, if you sat under his right hand, then no one was going to mess with you unless they wanted to go to war with you. Unless they want to answer to the king. But we serve and we worship and we're invited into relationship with the king of kings. The scripture says that Jesus is enthroned on high. He has already disposed of all evil. He has already subdued all threats. All things are underneath his feet through his death and resurrection. Amen. The image is of a frail cocoon, like a little tent that we built of twigs and leaves. Or the most ultimate fallout shelter you can imagine. And when the storm of life hits, the temptation for us is to go to that shabby effort of our own instead of to rest in the protection of God. But God is a respecter of persons. He does not force himself upon us. He is invitational in that way. One of the most painful parts of parenting so far, my kids are young. I'm sure it's only going to get worse if you have older kids. But it's when my kids refuse my help or advice to their own detriment. Judah, please put shoes on. Put shoes on, bud. Oh, I stubbed my toe and scraped the daylights out of it. Daisy, if you don't get off that stool, you're going to fall in. And that's how it is with the Lord. He is inviting us in to refuge and rest with him. He's reminding us, he's walking with us. His spirit does not grow silent or weary of beckoning us to him, but he does not capture us like an enemy and draw us into his refuge against our will. So our call is to regularly, in rhythms, turn to Jesus. So we see here in verse 8, the, the thrust, the center point of this entire text. In fact, in the Hebrew, there's not much that you miss. There's some things that you miss out of the original language. And this is one thing. In the original Hebrew, there's the same amount of words before and after verse 8. David's saying, this is what's about. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The reason why we don't seek refuge in the Lord is because we don't really believe in that moment that he delights in us and he loves us and he wants our good above all else. But this idea of keep me as the apple of your eye, I was like, man, that's strange. We talked about that last week as Isaac 
taught through the book of Zechariah? What's it mean to be the apple of your eye? What's a colloquial phrase that actually talks about the center of your people? The little black part where you can see the reflection of whoever you're talking to or your own self if you're looking to a mirror. That centermost part of your eye is, especially in this culture, the most valuable thing. Because if you can't see, you're totally helpless. So when you're under attack, when you're under refuge, you might not be able to guard all of yourself, but you're going to cover your face. You're going to protect your eyes. It's the most valuable part of the body is this picture, this image. And what we're hearing is that Jesus considers us of utmost value. He promises to protect us. That's good news. Do we believe that? Do we rest in that? The other picture is that we're hidden in the shadow of God's wings. And no lie, as I was preparing the sermon, I wrote a note about the land of Elrond that we just talked about. I love the Lord of the Rings. I'm not going to dive into it, but that in this Narrative in the story of the Lord of the Rings, these hobbits who have never known war, have never known darkness, are ushered out of the safety of their little hobbit homes and they go on an incredibly dangerous and dark and perilous journey. And they're exhausted and they're near death and they're worn out and they barely are drugged by the rest of their group across this safety boundary into the lands of the elves where no evil is going to come across. And I think that is a picture of the shadow of our wings, of the Lord's wings, that the best place for a little baby bird is tucked right underneath that, the eagle that's keeping them safe. That is the intimate protection that God offers. When I was in high school, in college, I played in a Christian rock band. Um, you might not know that. But uh, to my deep disappointment, about three months after forming the band, I realized that our original name, Consumed, we were kind of a hardcore Christian rock band, uh, was copywritten already. Yeah, it's, it's appropriate to laugh at that. Yeah. Um, the, the, the original name was uh, copywritten. So really quickly, we're filling out paperwork so we could get a bank account and all this stuff that bands do. And I... I need to find a name. I'll just look through the Bible like any good 11th grader would do. Just I started flipping through it and I was like, oh, the, the Psalms have some cool stuff. And so I just opened to Psalm 91. I don't know if I had ever read it before, honestly. And I began to read this text that talks about the protection of being nestled in God's wings. And it point, paints this vivid picture. Listen to this. Psalm 91 verses three through nine. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. And from the deadly pestilence, he will cover you with his pinions. And under his wing, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord Yahweh your dwelling place, the Most High, 
who is my refuge. So the, as an 11th grader, I had not known a lot of darkness. And all I could think about is this epic battle scene where people are dead with arrows through them all around. And this one guy is standing. I'm like, arrows fall. That's what we're going to name our band. So that's what we named our band, Arrows Fall. Um, no, you can't find us on Spotify because I'm, I'm really old. But what has stuck with me a lot longer than our band name is the powerful image of God's protection. I can think of times in my life, I can think of times in the past year where I felt like 10,000 people around me were laying slain and I was alone. Does that resonate with you? Have you had those moments in your life? You don't know, anything, no, don't know to do anything other than weep? In that moment, God invites us to have rest and refuge in him. To trust in his character. That's the invitation tonight. David was a king. He was smart. He was righteous. He was powerful. He was doing all the things. But when he faced opposition, he looked to the Lord and found rest in him. David continues his case in verses 10 through 12. He talks about the evilness and the brokenness of those who assail him. They've closed their hearts off to pity. Their mouths are full of arrogance. They have encircled us. They're like a lion eager to tear. And when I first heard this, I, I confess, I just thought, man, this is hard. We live in a, a world so full of gray. The lines of good and evil are so blurry. But more than that, Jesus says some challenging things like love your enemy. Do good to those who harm you. Pray for your enemies. He is being crucified and calls to his father to forgive them. So how do we hold these things in tension? I think the truth is that we, one, can recognize in light of the New Testament that behind all human evil, there is spiritual evil. Ultimately, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and principalities of evil. But secondly, there are people who have given themselves over to darkness. And we should diligently pray for them because the scriptures say, so once were we. We should diligently pray for them, but that does not mean that we should not also oppose them in their actions. We can pray eagerly for God's justice and his mercy at the same time. We can want freedom and protection from those who wish to do us harm, for those who do great evil in the world around us, and not hate them. We can see the image of God and ask God to stop the destruction that they are bringing about on image bearers. And this is, I think, a supernatural tension that we uniquely as a church of Christ can embody. Are you able to call out injustice when you see it? Do 
Do you really hate what God hates? And at the same time, do you love and pursue those who are consumed in brokenness? Who do you feel embattled with tonight? Are there people, family members, friends, coworkers? Maybe it's your whole job. When you read this, what part of it resonates with you deeply? You can faithfully pray for deliverance and protection while also praying for God to draw those people to repentance. But we cannot neglect the spiritual nature of this as well. Peter describes the devil as a roaring lion, almost the same words as we see here in verse 10, prowling around, seeking whom he can devour. We can see the the bigger picture that maybe David wasn't fully privy to, that there is a cosmic battle of good and evil that we are a part of. But the good news about this battle is that Jesus Christ has already won the victory. Through his death and resurrection, he has defeated sin and death. He's offered us wholeness and freedom. Deliverance and refuge. That changes the way that we engage in these battles. Before we look at the last verses, I want to ask us one more question about these evildoers. Could this prayer be prayed against you? I read this and I always see myself as the good guy, right? But are are there parts of your life where you are the one who is participating with the forces of darkness and corruption? Are there family members or friends, the parts of our marriage where we have closed our hearts to pity, where we are so full of arrogance that we're not open to rebuke? The good news of verse 13 is what we just talked about. We don't have to fight these battles. We can trust that Jesus Christ has already been victorious in them. And we can say, yeah, that's good truth. But the practical question here is, when you engage these situations, are you consumed about how you can control the situation? How you can fix it? How you can protect yourself? Or are you more diligent to seek the Lord in prayer in these moments? To ask Jesus to help you. To find rest in him. Because the cross is a mysterious and infinitely powerful thing. It looks backwards and shapes the way we read all of history. And it looks forward and shapes all of our future. And so we can know that even in the midst of darkness and injustice, that ultimately God is bringing about justice because of the resurrection of Jesus. 
It's not self-deceit or, an, or deception, but that is trusting in God's promises to make all things new. Because what David was lamenting is still true for us today in verse 14, that there are these wicked men whose portion is in this life, but yet they are full of treasure. Their children have everything they want, and there's an abundance for their children's children. Do you look around and think, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? I do things right and it's difficult and costly. They do things wrong and it's beneficial to them. But what David ends here with is the truth that we must remember that those things will not bring rest. Do you really see rest in these guys' lives? The people that come to mind when I say these things, they may have an abundance, but they're always striving for more. <coughs> they may have all they want, but it's not enough. And ultimately, if they have everything they want in this life, this life ends. The wisdom and the foreshadowing of David in verse 15, I think is incredible and supernatural. Justice hasn't come to him yet. He's still on the floor begging for God to move, trusting in deliverance that hasn't happened, hoping for justice that's delayed. He's trusting in God's character and what he prays is, as for me, I shall behold the face. I shall behold your face. I will wake and be satisfied with your likeness. Long before Christ, David was able to know and trust God's eternal justice and the fleeting nature of the things of this earth. All this will pass away. What are we resting in? What is our refuge in? There is a day that's coming when all will be made right. But today we have an invitation to begin to participate in that kingdom. We live in this tension, the already and the not yet. We are invited into relationship with Jesus today. And that is the only place here on earth that we will find <clears throat> true rest and true peace. That we'll find real refuge. So my last question for us tonight as we get ready to close is, how do you experience and pursue the presence of God. Paul says that we see dimly now, but we shall one day see God face to face. This, I confess, can feel abstract and ephemeral at times, but through the prayer, through our prayers, through stillness, through God's promises found in his word, through the life of Jesus, through Christian community, through sacrificial living, through evangelism, through all the disciplines that we are invited into in the body of Christ. We can experience God's presence here and now. We can have a foretaste of the life that is to come. Something I've begun to do more and more is in my day with the prayer of examine. There's a couple of parts of that. Part of that is recognizing the sin, the places where I've missed God, where I've refused God, where I've rejected God during the day. But the other part is to ask myself, where today have I seen God at work? And when we develop and cultivate that habit, 
we begin to see that God is all around us and working all in us. In the good seasons, we can formulate that and practice that so that when the darkness and the difficulty comes, we can still have eyes to see. But it is only a dim picture as compared to what is promised. There is a day that's coming. If you're weary, have this hope. There is a day that's coming. If you're tired, have this hope. There is a day that's coming when all that we long for and all that we lament will pass away. In light of God's presence. The picture in Revelation is one where God himself radiates all the light and all the joy and all the peace and all the rest that we need. So in a minute, we are going to come to the table and take of the body and the blood. This reminder that God has given us. That through his body that was broken and through his blood that was shed, that he has already purchased justice and peace for us. That his rest is breaking in all around us. This table is for all of those who are trusting in Christ for salvation. So in a minute, our ushers are going to come down and as you partake of the table, you're going to take the bread and go back to your seat. We're going to take it together and it's a reminder of the day that is coming. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come. It's a way to be nourished today so we have strength for tomorrow. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to bless this table. Father, we thank you for your rest. And we thank you for these reminders. That what you have done through Jesus Christ is infinitely more powerful than all that stands against us today. Strengthen us by your body. Purify us with your blood. Give us faith for tomorrow. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.